Well, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you have been at church, ours or any other church for any amount of period of time, whether you like it or not, you are a part of what is known as the Christian subculture. And in this Christian subculture of ours, there's a lot of quirky stuff, isn't there? Exhibit A would be testaments. This is real. These exist, right? Because at a typical grocery store or something, there would be packages of gum and, and mints. But what's, what is the Christian bookstore to do? Well, invent testaments where every mint is wrapped in scripture. This is a real thing. Um, in this Christian subculture of ours, we've become familiar with what's known as the church sign, right? Constantly being changed, being changed with a new saying every week or so. That's a tall task. And here, I'll just show you a couple. Here's one. This church is prayer conditioned. That's right. Uh, I actually drove a few years ago, one of my favorites that I ever drove by. I drove by a uh, church in another community. And uh, driving by and the sign said, God answers knee mail. It's true. Uh, Here's one with a little more bite to it. Real church sign says, whoever stole our AC units, keep one. It is hot where you're going. (laughs) Because nothing says like gospel Christian witness, like a retributive statement on the church's sign. What a blessing, hey? Now, now we're getting into a little more niche territory here. These are real. Um, there's this line of figurines. Uh, Christian subculture has many lines of figurines. This is just one of them. It's the Jesus is my coach line of figurines. And I have a friend who, you know, tongue in cheek, he was collecting really cheesy Christian trinkets. And I bought him one and it really was the trump card. It was like the great... Uh, it was the great kind of ultimate Christian trinket. He's a golfer, and so I got him a Jesus is my coach golf trinket where Jesus was actually like reaching and helping the individual with their swing. This is real. These are real. I ordered it. It arrived. Um, and so here's a few of them. These are real. Jesus is my coach. Here's the baseball one. All right? So that you get, you get a bit of a flavor for it. My son plays baseball. I'll get him the Jesus is my coach Baseball trinket, it it gets worse. Uh, Taekwondo. Because there's nothing, uh, I think you're horrified either with these things or with me. I'm pulsing it, I'm not sure. Um, If you start throwing stuff, that'll clarify where you're at. Uh, Taekwondo Jesus, because nothing really says, you know, the ministry of Jesus, like him teaching children to roundhouse kick someone in the face, right? There you go. Um, Jesus is my coach in basketball. Um, and this one actually feels like a sick joke. Like this is a very, this is very unkind. It's like a keep away with the kids. There's no way they can get the ball. I don't think they're walking away from that time encouraged. And then finally football, Jesus is my coach for my football. And the interesting thing about this one is 21, like he's taking his life into his hands. He's, he's deciding I'm going to tackle Jesus here. So, um, pretty astounding. And then, um, I'm not sure if I should dabble into the Christian t-shirt slogan genre. 
um, because it might start striking a nerve with some of you because you, maybe you have some of these, and that's fine. Uh, here's one. I'll give you one. This is real. The shirt says, want to get high? Take a hit of this, and then it has a picture of a Bible. And Central, I have a confession to make this morning. Um, when I was a teenager, I'm not sure which year, I literally owned this shirt and wore it. <laughs> thinking it was so cool. And I want to apologize publicly <laughs> for doing that. Now I'm just dabbling in some of this, whatever, like cheesy, funny stuff. But is it any wonder that, you know, the culture around us looks in at the church, looks in at Christianity and points and says, folly, foolishness. I mean, come on. Add to that, of course, not, these are just simply cheesy and fun, but add the arrogant, abrasive, and unloving defenses of the faith that some people think they have to have primarily online these days. Great defenses of the faith that come off like brash, criticisms, and it only fuels the fire to why our world cries, folly, foolishness. And yet, even with all of that going on, there is an even more primary reason why Christianity is seen as foolishness, and we see it in our text this morning. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at a few verses. If you have a Bible app, you can open it to 1 Corinthians 1. Um, we have Bibles just outside the doors on the lower level and Bibles up in the balcony that you can help yourselves to. Um, you can keep if you don't own a Bible. We'd love to give it to you. We'll also have it on the screen in the ESV translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross... The message of the gospel itself is folly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wow. That is God's word to us this morning. And here are the three ways that we are going to unpack it. One, the gospel appears foolish. It just does. Second, the gospel is the power and wisdom of God. And third, the gospel must be at the center. Let's pray and then dive in. Jesus, we want to experience your power and wisdom this morning. And this text tells us, Lord, that that comes via the cross. 
So, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts with your message of what true wisdom is, what your power looks like, that you would illuminate to us the beauty, the wonder of the gospel. And God, I do pray for my own heart. God, my temptation is constantly to, when I read your word and it prods me, it rubs me the wrong way. My temptation is to make it subservient to my thought. And yet your call on us, Lord, is to make our wills subservient to what you make plain in your word. So Lord, I pray, would you make us humble? Would your word go out with power? And would our lives be changed? In Jesus' name, amen. So one, the gospel appears foolish. One of the uh, oldest images of Jesus that has been found comes from roughly 200 AD. And it's called the Alexaminos Graffito, or as the Christian church historically has known it as Graffito Blasphemo, the blasphemous graffiti, right? Depends which way you look at it. And we'll show it on the screen here. It's estimated to have been made around 200 AD in Rome. And it is one of the earliest depictions found of Jesus. Do you see what it is? It's mocking. The image seems to show a young man worshiping a crucified donkey headed figure. And the Greek inscription approximately translates to Alexaminos worships his God. Indicating that the graffito was apparently meant to mock a Christian named Alexaminos. The inscription is a mocking depiction of a Christian in the act of worship. At the time, non-Christians derided Christians for worshiping a man who had been crucified. And the donkey's head and crucifixion would have been considered insulting depictions by contemporary Roman society. So the great graffiti on the wall, right? When the church is merely in its infancy is mocking the Christians. Look who they worship, a crucified savior. Silliness. Cicero, if you know your Greek history, if you're a nerd like that, like me, um, Cicero was a politician um, in the first century BC and scholar. And so um, crucifixion was a method of... um, of putting people to death by the Romans. And he, as a Roman politician, had this to say in the first century BC. And so this carried on even into the time of Jesus and after. He said, the cross, it speaks of that which is so shameful, so horrible, it should never be mentioned in polite society. He is saying, don't talk about it with dinner guests. You don't speak of it. It's horrible. It's shameful. The one who was hung on a cross was guilty of awful crimes and deemed unfit to live by the people and by the powers that be. Society saw those crucified as rejected by men and damned by God. That's who crucified people were. And yet, in our text this morning, the apostle Paul comes along and what does he exclaim? We preach Christ crucified. That's his message in the midst of the horror of it, that you don't mention it in polite company, that you are mocked for it 
Paul is exclaiming, this is the God we worship. To go a little deeper in uh, cultural norms at the time. See, Jews expected of this Messiah that was to come. Jews expected miracles and signs and wonders to put his power on display. That's why when you read the gospels, they're constantly asking Jesus, work a miracle. Show us something that we can be amazed about. Prove that you're the Messiah. But see, a crucified Messiah contradicted everything they expected their Messiah to be. It didn't make sense. It could not be true in their minds. They saw those who were hung on crosses as those cursed by God. It was an impossibility and an offense. And so therefore it says in our text, it's a stumbling block to Jews. Couldn't get past it. He can't be the Messiah. He died on a cross. To the Greeks, on the other hand, Greeks at this time were proud of their wisdom. The philosophers, the great thinkers of their day, were the rock stars, were the celebrities. If TMZ was following anybody at that time, it was the great thinkers in philosophy, right? These were their celebrities and they saw the gospel as the opposite of their wisdom. They saw it as utter foolishness. They were too smart for it. They could not conceive of God acting like that. They had no place Among their lofty thought for the gospel, in their minds, it was folly. And yet the crucifixion, like I said, is at the heart of the gospel. Later in this letter, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. For I delivered to you as of what is of first importance. This is what matters most. Jesus died and he rose. That is preeminent. That comes first. I could not tell you anything more important than this. Jesus died and rose again. Well, at the very heart of the gospel, it wasn't acceptable to Jews or Gentiles, meaning all of humanity, Jews and non-Jews, everybody on the planet. The gospel, the cross was not acceptable to any of them. And listen, nothing has changed, has it? Nothing's changed. Listen, when I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the gospel, I'm going to use that phrase like 90 times this morning. And I just want you to, to understand what I'm getting at when I say that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to gather the, the whole work of Jesus, his finished work that he accomplished on the cross into one statement. So Jesus, when he hung on the cross, we believe that he bore the penalty for our sins. He bore our very wrongdoings there and he paid the penalty for us on that cross, and then he was put in a tomb, but then he rose again. And so Jesus has accomplished two things that we never can. He defeated sin. So so he has the answer for what we do with our guilt. And he also rose from the grave, meaning he reigns, he rules over death, sin and death. He is the answer. He's our resurrection. He's our purifier. And so he is those things. And so when I say the gospel, I'm saying that Jesus is the great answer. This is the good news and it's to be made available for all of us. But I do mean this, nothing has changed. The gospel still comes as folly to people around us. I don't know if that's been your experience. A couple of years ago, we invited neighbor friends of ours to a Christmas Eve service here at Central and they came and and enjoyed it. And that was wonderful. Um, but it was funny because we had started talking a little bit about Christmas, right? And with kind of a chuckle and twinkle in her eye, she looked at us and she's like, oh, the virgin birth, right? Virgin birth, really? 
Right? Like, it's just like, you're so silly, you guys. You believe in that virgin birth stuff and crucifixion bit. Come on. Nothing has changed. But this is serious. This matters. We have to engage that, this because Paul doesn't mince words. Look at verse 18. The gospel, everything I said about the work of Jesus, the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Listen, what we do with Jesus is the most important thing we will do in our lives. And the gospel, the message of Jesus, always has two results. It sounds foolish to those who are perishing. And when I say perish, what that word means is that there's a road to destruction. This is a a people who are lost. That's what God's word is saying about people who think the gospel is foolish Those who find the gospel too foolish to believe, Paul writes, are perishing. And the other result is that to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Quite the juxtaposition. Folly to some, the very power of God to others. Listen, and we believe that the gospel is so powerful that it turns sinful people into God's people. And that's pretty astounding. Here's point number two. The gospel is the power and wisdom of God. How so? See, foolish as it seems to the world, we follow a savior who bore a cross. And here's why. The human heart is so sinful, so rebellious, and so wicked that there was no other way for us to receive salvation than through the eternal son of God becoming man and suffering the most disgraceful and humiliating death so we could be redeemed. So as, as the world looks at the cross and say, you follow a savior who was crucified on that, we say, yes, because we are so vile, we are so needy, we are such wrongdoers that we deserve that kind of wrath. And yet Jesus died there. It's the great replacement, the great exchange. He died the kind of death we are deserving of. That, so we see that as power and beauty, whereas everyone else is going to say foolishness. See, with the cross in view, the crowds and your rebellious heart and mind cried, crucify him to God. And in that moment, that was the very worst of human nature revealed. And yet at the same time, in that very moment, the very heart of Christ's infinite love and grace was revealed. The exact same moment, we could not have reviled him more. He could not have loved us more. And those things collide at the cross and Jesus says, now follow me. I'll give you life. I'll forgive your sin. I will make you new. Through the cross, Jesus became our great sin offering. Again, it says those called, and that's whoever we are, wherever we're from. It's the great invitation to any and everyone. Those called know that Christ crucified means power. See, before salvation, we were defeated by sin. But as those who follow Christ, we follow the saving one who defeated sin on the cross. So we were defeated, and now we have a victory in Christ power of God. Upon our conversion, we go from death to life and the power of God begins to be at work within us. 
the cross, the gospel is the power of God. So yes, the gospel is the power of God, but it also tells us in this text, it's the wisdom of God. How is that? Because it seems like foolishness, no? So if the way to God had been through wisdom, like human wisdom, our best wisdom, salvation would have only been available to the intellectuals. Like, right? Do you see that? Do you, do you track with that? Like if it was through our best thinking that we could go, ah, he is the savior. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He is the redeemer. I figured it out. Well, then it's only the scholarly. It's only the intellects that would ever come to figure it out, to see it. But here's the power and wisdom of the gospel is that it opens the way for anyone who would believe it's made plain. You hear it, you believe it, receive it. It's not our cunning. It's not our brilliance. See, the brilliance of God is this, the wisdom and power of God that puts the wisdom and power of the world to shame. He says, I've made it so simple. To those who are being saved, it's the power of God. To those that are perishing, it's utter foolishness. Couldn't be. And in the midst of that kind of a culture that thought it was a stumbling block or folly, the apostle Paul says things like he did in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm going to proclaim this silly message because it is the power of God. That's what exists in it. See, it's not only that we preach what we preach is folly, that what we preach is foolish. It's the message we actually preach. It's the gospel itself. God says, I use this foolish thing to save. Listen to verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. That's the subject matter. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Amazing. The message that God saves us through a savior who was crucified on a cross. That salvation does not come through the exerting of wisdom or earning it on our own merits. Salvation comes to those who believe in the gospel. I read recently a story uh, from a couple centuries ago of a man from the countryside in England who went to London on a trip. And well there, here's what it says. A man from the country in England went to London and listened to some of the great preachers of that day. Writing home to his wife, he said, last Sunday I went to, in the morning to hear Dr. So-and-so. He named the most eloquent man occupying a London pulpit at that time. And in the evening, I went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to listen to Charles Spurgeon. So he goes on to write his wife, I was greatly impressed by both of them. Dr. So-and-so is certainly a great preacher. But Mr. Spurgeon, he has a great savior. Oh, in the morning when I went to church, oh, the way he could just... Turn a phrase. He's a great preacher. Stunning words. Very eloquent. Very knowledgeable. He is a good preacher. But then in the evening, I went and heard Spurgeon preach, and he painted a picture of who Jesus is, and I saw my Savior. I saw a man filled with wonder about who Jesus is, not taking any stock in his abilities but in the wonder and beauty of the gospel. Look, this is so the Christian witness. It's not that we are great. I hope you'll never sense that feeling from me or from us as a church. It's not that we're great. We're not far from it, but we have a great savior. So we will proclaim him. In that same vein, H.A. Ironside, who was a 
a faithful preacher at Moody in Chicago for many years, wrote, what is preaching? What is this thing I'm doing? What is preaching? He says it this way. It is a simple proclamation and it has pleased God by what looks to man like foolishness, the simplicity of making an announcement. Again, that's what preaching is. The simplicity of making an announcement to save them that believe. I stand up in the name of the God of heaven and declare that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The world says foolishness. You could not prove that if you had to. No, I could not, he says. But I repeat the announcement. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And whenever a man, whenever a person is humble enough and lowly enough to believe the announcement, he is saved. Look, I get up here every Sunday morning and I, we, I do not have within me what it takes. I feel woefully inadequate. I feel like the sermon isn't nearly done, but the service is starting, so let's go. Every time I just, Lord, I'm... I'm not up to the task. Who am I? I'm not smart enough. I'm not eloquent enough. What do I have to share? And yet I'm convinced what I've got to share is the message of Jesus. Let's take some verses and apply what they say. Like, look, that's all I've got. And so I'm up here again this morning doing what I always do, asking you, will you believe the announcement? It's simple proclamation and it appears like utter foolishness But will you believe the announcement? It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to enable us to know God. And it comes via the folly of the cross. Thirdly, and this is is more practical, the gospel must be at the center. So we're doing this series right now called We Are What We Value. And what what, what we mean by that is this. if, we, if you consider yourself a Christian, you will give intellectual assent. You will say, and you will even believe that Jesus is our supreme treasure. He's the greatest thing in our lives. If we are to be Christians, we should be his servants. We should be his followers. We take our cues from him. He's supreme in our lives, correct? And we will say that. That is the mark of the Christian life. But then we'll leave here. And for many of us, what will actually happen is we'll live like that's not true. Why? We not only will give the right answer in church or in a conversation, we'll actually believe it to be true, but then we'll leave and we won't live like it's true. Why? Here's the reason. The reason is we're not primarily thinking things. Not primarily. We're thinking things, but we're not primarily thinking things. We haven't been created that way. We've been created as primarily loving things. You and I love things. And so we might know the right answer. We might believe the right answer. But if there's something over here that our heart is captured by, we'll live our lives like we're chasing that thing over here. And so what we're after this fall is not simply the right answers. We're after the right values. We're longing to be a people who value and deeply love and are convinced they're true that we can live out of that orientation. And so we're doing this series, We Are What We Value, to focus primarily on our our six key values here at the church. We long to embody them, not just have them on a wall, 
somewhere or on a website, but to embody them, to live them out. And the first one that we're tackling here this morning is um, uh, centered on the gospel. We put it first on purpose, gospel centrality. Everything flows from there. And so what we're after in our fall sermon series is threefold. We want to address our misplaced values individually and corporately. Secondly, to find our deepest values in Christ. And third, to discover and live out our corporate values as a church. So why do we have this centered on the gospel here first? Why is that? Well, right smack in the middle of our text this morning, we have a statement that's quite striking. See, the Apostle Paul is a preacher to the Gentile world. He left Jerusalem and went out proclaiming Christ to people. And he went to different countries, different cities. And he, he talked about different things at different times in different places. You can read the epistles, these latter letters in the New Testament of the Bible and see that he talked about all kinds of things. And he preached many sermons in many places. And yet he can summarize all of it like this. We preach Christ crucified, period. It's the grand summary statement of everything he said, of all of his ministry, of all of his proclamation. It's the summary statement is this. We preach Christ crucified, period. That's it. That's our ministry. That's all we've got. And so I want us to look at what it means to have the gospel at the center and from a few different angles. Here's one. The gospel, first of all, gathers all the trajectories of scripture. This is kind of a subtitle. It's my way of actually having five points, but convincing you I only have three. The gospel gathers all the trajectories of scripture because here's the risk. The risk is seeing the gospel as a small part of the Bible's content, like these really overt passages that, that talk about the crucifixion and the blood of Christ and those kinds of things. The risk is that we see the gospel as a small, small part of the Bible's content rather than seeing the gospel as the great unifying redemptive theme of all of scripture. We run the risk if we do not see the gospel as the trajectory by which everything comes to. We, we, we compartmentalize the scriptures and, well, the gospel gets placed over here, but, but I'm actually working on this kind of Christian living and it has nothing to do with the gospel. No, 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 no. Everything finds its fulfillment in the gospel. All of scripture is pointing to the gospel. I think that Dave Harvey put it well when he said, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. Every word in the scriptures fits into one of those categories revolving around the gospel. Everything points to it. All of scripture culminates in it. It's the very centerpiece of scripture. The second set point is the gospel is at the center of Christian life and thought. It's the very center fabric core of the Bible. And it is also the very center fabric core of the Christian life of our living. Cause there's this risk. The risk is seeing the gospel simply as the gospel message that gets us saved and then moving on from it. I've said this before, right? Sometimes we think that the gospel is the ladder into the pool of Christianity. And then you get into the waters of the pool. You've moved on from the gospel that was simply the ladder in, but that's not the case. What the Christian discovers is that yes, the gospel is the ladder into the pool. And then they climb in the pool and realize the gospel is the whole pool as well. Put another way, the gospel isn't simply the brief message that gets us saved. It's the very center of the Christian faith and life. Dr. D.A. Carson, a preeminent 
Christian theologian of our day, talks about this when he writes about the gospel at the center of all Christian ministry. Let me just give you a a sense of how the gospel infiltrates every area of life. He says, we forgive others because we ourselves have been forgiven. See, just stop there for a second. We don't look at forgiveness like it tells us to forgive in the Bible. I should forgive. That's not how we approach forgiveness. We say, look at the grand, beautiful, stunning forgiveness of Jesus Christ in my life. That makes me long to be a forgiving person. So when I'm instructed to in the scriptures, it's out of the gospel and the power I'm given in it that I'm even able to be a forgiving person. Do you see how the, it all revolves around the gospel? We don't just forgive because we're told, we forgive because we've been forgiven. We walk in humility because no one has ever displayed more humility than our Savior in abandoning his rights as God and dying our death. I could stop at every line here, but I just, again, want to say, where do we get humility from? Not as an instruction from the manual that is the Bible. No, from the reality that Jesus became, humbled himself and became nothing, became a servant to save us. And in that grand humility, when he calls us to be humble, it's like, oh, okay, my Savior was. It all revolves around the gospel. We hunger to live out the love on display among the persons of the Godhead because it was out of the love that the Father determined that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And because it is out of the love for his Father that the Son went to the cross to do his Father's will. So that's where our great instructions for love come. Our ultimate model for husband-wife relationships is predicated on the gospel, the bond between Christ and the church. So when we approach marriage, we're not just giving principles of how to have a better marriage. We're saying we have to look at Christ and the church and we will have this stunning view of the gospel that infiltrates our marriages. We hunger for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord because the Holy One has not only established our status before his Father, but is at work to make us holy. As all the wretched malice of assorted idolatries and transgressions is precisely what the gospel of Christ overcomes, we hunger to live as Jesus lived, our Savior and Lord, living another way in our individual lives, in our homes, in our world. We learn obedience through suffering because our pioneer went this way before us. At every turn, everything that we take on in our Christian lives and Christian witness is fixated on, flows out of the good news of Jesus Christ. We never move on from it. We never make it one aspect among many in ministry. We long to be centered, on the other hand, on the gospel. And by neglecting or augmenting the gospel, we deny the very power and wisdom of God. It must be the focal point. Any ministry going on that is void of the gospel is powerless because the power of God is in the gospel. It would be void of life transformation. And we want no part in that. And yet our lives are often marked, if we're honest, or our lives are often unmarked by the gospel and much ministry in the church is often unmarked by the gospel. And this is a dangerous temptation for us individually and corporately. So being centered on the gospel safeguards the church from busy work, from a church calendar filled with activities, but lives that are void of change. Is the gospel a right Sunday school answer to you? Or that thing that changed you and you've never been the same since. That total life reorienting truth that you keep coming back to over and over and over again because it's life-giving, because it's the very power of God. Let me ask you another hard question. Is your life characterized by radical forgiveness? I mean, I could use any example of, of the many we've listed 
Because those who have encountered the gospel recognize that they've been forgiven an infinite amount and therefore are able to radically forgive others. When the gospel is central in our lives and we've been forgiven much, we are able to forgive much. But when we only give intellectual assent to the forgiveness that Christ has given us, a stated belief but not a living in, we find it very, very difficult to forgive anybody of anything. So is your life centered on the gospel? Here's a difficult one for me right now. Do you parent as one parenting through the gospel? Like if our whole lives are meant to be uh, just infused with the gospel at every turn, it affects things like our parenting. And I don't know about you, but I often find parenting extremely frustrating. And so earlier in the summer, I was listening to a podcast I'd come across about what it looks like to do gospel parenting. Like, what is that? How do we parent as people who believe the gospel and want to live out the gospel. And I was deeply convicted. I was riding my bicycle along the river, listening to this podcast. And at one point I had to stop because I was just like convicted and just repent because he, this, um, this guy giving this lecture was actually talking about a precise scenario that I had just had with my son. Days earlier, I looked at my son and I said, what do you think you are doing? You are so entitled. You know that? You think everything's owed to you. You should just get stuff. I never would have done what you just did when I was your age. Can anybody relate to that? And yet we're gospel people. And so what we do is say, believe the gospel, son. Believe the gospel, daughter. But I'm going to rule you with the law. And I'm going to be shocked when you grow up not to discover that I've been displaying the gospel to you ever. I've been displaying law. When it says, I never would have done that. You're supposed to do this. It means this. Here's the bar, son. Do this. This is the right stuff. Do it. Come on. Do the right thing. I, I did the right thing. I can do the right thing. Why can't you do the right thing? That's ruling. That's parenting via the law. Now listen, children need boundaries. Like don't let me, I'm dabbling into a pool now that is huge. Okay, I get that. But they need rules. They need boundaries. That's healthy for children. And yet they also need the gospel on display. So one of the things, look, I'm, I'm trying to work on as a dad is to double back to my son and get it right the next time and say, son, I've noticed in what you did, I've noticed something. It's called entitlement. And I want, I want to start here. When I see that in you, I need you to know, I think you have that because you're my son and I have that. You know that? I struggle with the same thing you struggle with. So how do we approach this together? I want to just help you, help show you because it needs to change. We can't act that way. How can we grow in this? Look, here's what I do. I turn to Jesus and say, I'm doing this and I shouldn't. God, would you forgive me? And we have a Jesus who loves us and says, okay, I'll forgive you. And he's going to help us the next time. We say, God, would you help me the next time? He'll say, yeah, I'll help you the next time. And that's how we approach it. And so you're, yes, the attitude, the stuff, it needs to stop. It needs to be dealt with. And yet the calling on gospel parents who believe the gospel is to embody the gospel and approach son and daughter and any relationship we have and say, 
I'm going to infuse this conversation. I'm going to approach this with gospel, not the law. And it informs, it ought to inform absolutely everything. I want to be a person centered on the gospel. I long for you to be a people centered on the gospel so that when we gather, it is clear to the watching world that is a church centered on that foolish thing called the gospel. One of my favorite songs of all time is entitled, Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet. <laughs> and it's one simple line on repeat. And, and the, the, the way that the song was written, it was actually written by a, a homeless man in London a number of years ago and a, a, a quite a well-known, at least at the time and at least in England, well-known composer named Gavin Bryars was walking down a busy city street in London. And as he was walking by, he heard this homeless man, homeless man with nothing to his name sitting crouched on the street singing this little song, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. And he just repeated it over and over. He walked by, oh, that's interesting. And he went into the studio, composing some songs, recording some songs. And that whole day, he could not get out of his head this simple little melody by this homeless man, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. And so the next day, he asks this man on the street, he sees him again and says, would you come into the studio? Could I record that? It's a beautiful song. And so it turns out this man had nothing, nothing. Like he had no home. He never had enough food. He needed, depended on people's charity to provide for him. And yet he could sing, Jesus' blood has not failed me. It's all he had. The gospel was all he had. And so Gavin Bryars had him sing the melody into the microphone and he recorded it. And then Gavin sat down in the next, next number of days and began to compose a symphony, orchestra, the violins, right? The trumpets, the brass, the strings swelling underneath the simple melody of a homeless man who had nothing but Jesus' blood not failing him. And it's one of the most stunning things you'll ever hear. That's my story. And I think it's yours. We have nothing but the gospel, that's what we believe. And at the same time, we believe it's enough. And so as we fixate our entire beings on the gospel, you know what begins to happen according to this text? The symphony of the power of God around a simple melody that we just keep on repeat. <laughs> the swell of the orchestra giving great power great loftiness, great wisdom, and stunning beauty to the simple gospel message that we just continue to proclaim and live in and apply. I long for us to be, and I see us growing day by day in the fact that we are centered on the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because we've been touched by this word of the cross. That seems like such folly. And yet we have found it to be the opposite. We found it to be your very power. We found it to be the most stunning, beautiful thing imaginable. And so Jesus, I pray for us. Would you help us believe it? Would you help us proclaim it? And would you help us live out of it in your power? In Jesus' name, amen.